Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. I've chosen as our lead song this week, The Night the Lights Went Out in New York City by The Tramps, about a blackout in New York in 1977. We don't actually cover the 1977 blackout this week, but we do cover a book of young adult literature about a contemporary blackout in New York City. And we're joined by Sharon Vane, our frequent contributor and sometimes host of this podcast to talk about the book. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me back. That's the perfect song. Right? It's a, I, mean, I wouldn't call it a banger. You, know, you can't really call a disco song a banger, but it's, it, it's a very groovy song. And the Tramps are the, uh, the, the guys who recorded Disco Inferno. Which, so. you know, I think probably would maybe, maybe people would be playing on their battery-operated radios during the blackout in the for 70s sure. in New York City. For sure. For sure. The ultimate... Um, that's just going for the ultimate bar mitzvah song, really. Um, <laughs> when it comes down to it. So, but 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 blackout. Uh, the book you reviewed. This did not take place in 1977, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. It, it did in, not. In the, it did not. It's a contemporary, um, you know. But it does. Ha- it was in New York, or, uh, and um, during a blackout. And um, this really uh, is an amazing series of stories. This kind of literary supergroup formed um, to write this. Um, six uh, black female best-selling authors of young adult novels. Um, probably most of our listeners will be familiar with Angie Thomas, who wrote The Hate You Give. Um, but all of the authors are bestsellers and extremely well-known in Kidlet world. And uh, Danielle Clayton, who uh, is a higher-up with We Need Diverse Books and um, the author of the Bells series, in addition to several other books, really had the initial idea and then, you know, as they joke, sort of roped in her friends to doing this, in part because... Um, Many of the stories we see for black teens and centering black teens are about pain and trauma. And they right. wanted to write stories about love, romantic love, but there's also some family love in here. But these are really different tales of black teens falling in and out of love as they all navigate this massive blackout in the city. And these stories inter- interconnect to some extent. It's sort of an anthology. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's not, it's a novel. They're definitely all connected in some way, shape, or form. There's a framing narrative from Tiffany Jackson, who uh, regular readers of Book and Film Globe will remember from our reviews of Let Me Hear a Rhyme and Grown. Um, And her, she, she kind of has the most page time, if you will. She's got two teens who used to date and they reconnect at the very beginning of the book because they both applied for an internship at the Apollo Theater in Harlem and only one was supposed to get it, but there was a mistake and they show up and they haven't seen each other since they ghosted each other. 
And then the blackout hits and they've got to start walking towards home. And so we kind of check in with that couple throughout and then various folks, cousins and uh, friends and schoolmates appear in some of these other chapters or stories. Many of the characters are trying to make their way to a party at the end of the novel. Um, So they're kind of little threads that interconnect, but many of the stories could stand alone as just a story of two girls finding each other or a story of friends deciding, hey, we're more than friends. Um, So you can read it all the way through or you can read it in little bits. Right. So it, it um, in some ways, this feels like a book that is it's like the apotheosis of, of a current movement in publishing. You know, there's been so much uh, there have been so many more young adult stories of black teenagers, basically. And uh, th- these authors are all sort of at the height of their powers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it, that they're at the the height of their powers, although I would say this book represents kind of a next level of what you would want to see as a reader if you uh, want, as of course I do, and we talk about this a lot, to make sure that the landscape of young adult books reflects, you know, all the readers who are out there. So I feel like we see a lot of stories that are about civil rights or about police violence that center black teens. And this, you know, it doesn't make zero references to those kinds of things, but overwhelmingly this book is about black teens just being teenagers and relating to each other. And I feel like we don't have as many stories of that. Um, I think it's so tempting. I was just having this conversation earlier this week. It's so tempting with those high profile books to think, well, all the books coming out are about uh, black folks or are written by black authors. And the statistics are actually the exact opposite. It is still a tiny, tiny percentage of books, both for adults and for young adults are written by authors of color. So this is a welcome entry to the genre and, you know, just super joyful. Like you read it and you just, you feel good. It's, it's an enjoyable read. And, um, I love how the stories interweave and, uh, you know, it's nice to read a happy story once in a while. Right. Agreed. Uh, and, you know, and I feel like, you know, maybe uh, my perception of what's being published out is colored somewhat by what we cover. It, well, that's it, right. I often am, you know, pitching you, Neil, stories by authors of color in part because I feel like those uh, books don't always get the coverage or maybe one gets the coverage and then there's so many more, um, you know, out there that don't get coverage and, um, you know, it's a... Uh, it, it can feel sometimes a little bit like every title out there is um, written by a black author. That that's not the case. I do like to elevate them when when I can and when you let me. So I always appreciate the platform. I always let you. <laughs> the, the, your pitches are. Uh, can I review this book? And my answer is yes. Um, uh, question: Are any of the authors in this anthology? Uh, members of the Book and Film Globe Publishing Power 50 list that you put together. 
Um, well, that's a great question, and um, they are not, actually. Um, uh, if I were smart, I would have pulled up the Publishing Power 30, um, but um, 30. I... Yeah, power 30. Public Publishing Power 30, yes. Um, I, um, I absolutely think Danielle Clayton, um, you know, is somebody who um, has done so much um, for... Uh, publishing in general, in addition to being a writer. So um, that's somebody to keep your eye on um, as somebody making an impact in publishing. Uh, Nicola Yoon, who's another author um, uh, in this uh, anthology, has just uh, started a new imprint with her husband, who is also a young adult novelist. And their whole imprint is going to be focused on romance stories um, by uh, authors of color for uh, about teens of color. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that progresses as the year continues. Who published Blackout? Quiltree Brooks, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. All right. Well, we'll put a, a bookmark on that and we'll, we'll see if Blackout marks the uh, the beginning of a new era of, uh, of young adult fiction. Sharon, thank you so much. Uh, I know you'll be back hosting this sh- program in a couple of weeks and maybe we'll have you back as a guest as well you're always welcome book and film globe week in review podcast we cover the worlds of books and film and streaming tv we are recording this live on the clubhouse app which is an app that still exists and the podcast will be produced heavily and released on spotify and itunes and anywhere else where people consume delicious podcast content We're going to switch from an underdog piece of content, the book Blackout, to the definition of an overdog piece of content. If that if overdog is a, is a term, I saw that Stephen Garrett has unmuted his mic. He knows it's Hello. a term. Yes. Did someone say overdog? Yeah. Stephen Garrett, the overdog of film <laughs> criticism himself. The uberdog. The uberdog, exactly. Uber Hund. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Steven this week has reviewed F9 that, that, that little underdog movie the ninth right. movie in the Fast and Furious film franchise that, that <laughs> just a very obscure franchise that no one writes about or talks about that's right the little franchise that could yeah, I, I think this is, it's the most improbable franchise. Yeah, I mean, you've got to admit, like, how is this possible that this is still going on? Right. Uh, because it started as a movie about – it was like an innocent movie about street racing and, like, petty crime. Yeah. I, you know, I actually watched it again, as I'm sure most critics reviewed at least one of the eight other movies before seeing this or writing about it. And uh, I was really charmed. I forgot. I, I hadn't seen the first one in so long. And – it's it's really it's that is an underdog movie you know i mean it's it's really scruffy and it's got attitude and it's a lot of posturing but you know it was made on a you know pretty like the the highest stakes you know at, at the beginning of course i think famously people have written about this a lot like the big heist is like a truck full of vcrs and tvs you know and camcorders you know so it's 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 quaint and it's lovely, and it feels very real. It, it actually still exists in a world that we recognize. These right. latest movies just preposterously get more overblown to the point of such self-parody that they're, it's like meta-parody. I mean, I, I didn't talk about it in the review, but Tyrese has a running joke, a running gag throughout this F9 where 
he keeps saying like, wait a minute, there's something mystical about us because none of us ever die when we do these crazy stunts. And he kind of gets in his head about like, why are we still alive and why am I not injured? You know, um, so they call they kind of call BS on themselves, especially when they go into space and they're just like, just trust it. It's physics. As long as we follow physics then we're fine. And trust like, the science. No, trust the science. You're like, I do trust the science. This is clearly not that. So, so we, have a, we have a franchise that began with this innocent heist movie, and now suddenly uh, Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson are being launched into space. That's exactly right, yeah. In a car. Yeah, pretty much. In, pretty in much. a car. And not I, in a spaceship. Mean, also, spoiler alert, they ram a satellite, and they're fine, you know. Uh, of course. It, and it's not a spaceship. Yeah, exactly. So in structural integrity, uh, not really an issue, I guess. I don't know. It's very, it's very odd, but, but it's, it's very entertaining. But it's all about family. It's all about family, Stephen. It's always about family. And let me tell you, family, like Queenie Shaw says, you know, family's great, but it's also really dangerous, you know. Uh, yes. So, I mean, you know, Helen Mirren in a, in a British sports car is pretty dangerous, too, which is hilarious. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated that these movies pivoted towards this kind of weird Baroque, you know, kind of uh, like 21st century James Bond-esque people of color celebration of insanity, you know. And that's what every movie is exactly that in the franchise, or at least I guess starting with the fourth one or the fifth one. Um, but uh, they are easily consumable, very enjoyable, instantly forgettable. Right. And this, the, this latest one, uh, the, the, there's a, there's always some big generic muscle head for Vin Diesel to yell at, you know, the rock entered the franchise. Jason, I believe Jason Statham has appeared in the franchise. If I'm not, if I'm not, uh, sure. Mistaken. And yeah. now John Cena is in yep. the franchise. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg has not appeared in the franchise. I saw an article today that they're talking <laughs> about doing a crossover between Transformers and the Fast and Furious movies. That would make sense, I guess, in a very stupid way that both deal with some kind of cars that are tricked out or robots. I mean, why not? I see Dom Toretto, like, riding, you know, Optimus Prime. That'd be pretty cool. Why not? <laughs> nothing ever, nothing matters anymore. Why not? It's true. Nothing does matter. I mean, you know, I watch these uh, Mar Marvel Cinematic Universe shows, and then uh, while I'm watching the NBA playoffs, all the Marvel Cinematic Universe characters are appearing in commercials for cars. There you go. Exactly. While their shows are airing. Yeah, nothing, they're, they're, everything exists to promote everything else. So why not? Exactly. We're, we're riffing a little bit. F9 is out. It's stupid. You're, if you're going to see it, you're going to see it anyway. Stephen, big dumb, stupid, fun. Exactly. You saw it. You're you're a person alive in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the stunts are great too. Look, I yeah. think there's a golden age of stunts. You know, like that uh, movie I talked about earlier uh, last week. I've forgotten it already. What did I talk about? Uh, the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Hitman's Wife Bodyguard. Yeah, that had great stunts and it was completely dumb. You know, and that's that's very Fast and Furious adjacent. It's the same sort of. Let's make it international. Let's get some good actors doing dumb things and, you know, dress it with a lot of cool stunts. Right. And know, again, there's an audience for that. And again, you know, um, Fast and Furious movies are perfect things to be shown in the background when you're at a youth hostel in Chiang Mai, Thailand. <laughs> Not in the background, man. You put that on, everybody's going to gather around and watch right. it. 
couldn't afford to hit the bars that night, so we'll just put it on at the hostel, and people people will come and 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 waste a waste a Thursday night. Exactly, and they'll say, "Is this the one where they're chasing a nuclear submarine, or is this the one where they go to space?" You know, why not both? All right, why not both? <laughs> Thank you so much. F9 <laughs> out this week. You know, if you haven't seen it already, you're probably going to. All right, thanks. <laughs> All right, bye. Cheerio. All right, so. F9, not a controversial movie in any way. Strangely controversial, surprisingly controversial, is in these heights. It's not in these heights, in these heights. In the heights. The Lynn Manuel Miranda musical, which was supposed to, you know, be one of these movies that heralds our return to cinema. And it turns out it's gotten uh, a lot of criticism. Lynn Manuel Miranda has fallen victim to some cancel culture, and the movie has had some trouble. Uh, Jake Harris is here, and he wrote about that this week. Hello, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah, of course. So uh, I, you do these uh, excellent timelines for us that sort of that that bring these con- controversies into the fore. And you did another. I had you do one about In the Heights. I was surprised. I'll admit. Uh, did you see In the Heights? I did. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's a very joyful it's like a it's like sesame street for grown-ups or for or for 12 year olds you know it's this very joyful <laughs> celebration of a of a latino neighborhood in new york city there's lots of mm-hmm. fun dancing and set pieces i don't i mean look, i don't love the movie i thought it was kind of corny and um, what I, I equated it to afterwards at the end, and I didn't put this together until the final song, but I was like, oh, this is It's a Wonderful Life, updated and with a different cast and not all white people. And because, you know, every song is like a, you know, their I want song, and everybody is, you know, just trying to get out and get away from the neighborhood only to, you know, realize that, you know, the, the real fun and the real neighborhood was there all along. What so. if the neighborhood were the friends we made along the way? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, but interestingly enough, like you would think in our current environment, that, that would be enough. That 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 in the Heights would be, you know, uh, something to celebrate—a celebration of community and family and multi-ethnic urban living. Uh, but uh, Lin Manuel Miranda has been getting a lot of guff for not casting Afro-Latino actors and actresses. Yeah, so he. Um he has been getting a lot of blowback uh, really pretty much right before the movie came out. I think I don't think people even waited until it was out in theaters. It was just when the trailer came out. Uh, people took issue with the fact that it takes place in Washington Heights, which is a very diverse New York neighborhood, um, and there were not a lot of dark-skinned uh, uh, Latinx representation. Um, but but that's not really uh, even so true. The, like, but that's not even really true. Like the, Benny. Well, they were, were just, saying like there's there's Benny, but I don't think he's. I think he's just. He's not black, black enough. American. I don't, I don't know. He. You so know? you got Benny, and then you got. Uh, I think the bigger issue was the the darker skin roles were relegated to like some of the salon workers and some backup dancers, and you didn't really get to see their stories move to the forefront. Mm-hmm. But I think also part of that is. When Manuel Miranda, when he took the show to Broadway the first time, he gave himself the starring role, and so I think he might have just been looking for someone to do what he did in the starring role instead of try to cast something 
a little bit more accurate to whatever the material was possibly but um, but, it, but but it was i mean i i don't you know i i'm gonna side on the grumpy bill maher side of things here <laughs> like for you know to me i i don't think like literally don't think he did anything wrong there's no crime to be committed you know that washington post piece that 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 excoriated him was was i felt like completely uh, over the top and and out of bounds and, and and absurd you know i think i mean i just don't understand like what i just i still cannot quite gather I think it what might, he did wrong i think it might boil down to one and think it's a generational thing of you know like you've got Len Manuel Miranda, who's like the elder millennial, uh, and then you've got younger people who are, might be coming to watch this or might be watching it on HBO Max, who you know want to see themselves represented, and then they see you know oh like if I want to see someone that looks like me, they're a salon worker or a backup dancer or something. But then you've also got people on the other side of that, uh, like you know your Bill Mars, who are like bro, you like, you made the Founding Fathers black and Hispanic in your last hit musical and you've been doing your hardest to give representation to everyone. I don't think you have anything to apologize about. And I think the Lin-Manuel Miranda of it all is the key of it here too, I guess, because it, he's very much positioned himself as like an advocate for inclusion and in everything he does. And, and he is an advocate. Kind of like he, a, with he great power. And he, and he is. He, he is. is. Yeah. And like, I think to with a, you know, great power comes great responsibility type thing. But then once people look at that and they're like, oh, well, you did everything for all these other groups of people and why not me? And then I, I, I think to his credit, he, you know, the, the tweet that he put out was, you know, he just like, you know, look, I worked hard on this for a really long time and I'm still trying to, to work on everything and I'm going to apply this to future projects, which is all I can do, right? The movie's out, the movie's, <laughs> the play has been out for a long time now. Or he, um, or he could say, I'm not going to apologize, fuck you. Yeah, like he he took that. That's not what he would do. That's what I would do, which is why he's successful and I'm doing this. But uh, you know, but I, but but at, at the same time, you know, I, I don't know. I just I, I I just can't get my head around. You know, I don't even love. I don't even love uh, Manuel Miranda. I think I think I thought In the Heights was was a bit corny. I definitely think Hamilton is corny. But you know, you can't argue against the guy's cultural significance and, and to, mm-hmm. to, to hit someone, I mean, this guy's the definition of an ally. Yeah, I, yeah. Can I and pop then in I, with just yes. another viewpoint? Um, yes, Sharon Vane, yes. Um, Hello. That I... I mean, I think both things can be true, right? Lin-Manuel right. is like this amazing advocate for um, you know, Hispanic, Latino um, and, you know, actors of color on the Broadway stage. And I think, you know, In the Heights does spotlight that culture. And at the same time, it's centered in a really specific neighborhood of Washington Heights. And some of the things that I have seen in terms of this discussion is if you walk through that neighborhood, there are significant, significant numbers of, you know, folks who have both African and, you know, uh, Latin, you know, Hispanic heritage. Um, And I understand that In the Heights is not a documentary. At the same time, there's also a long history of casting lighter skinned, you know, like we're casting a Latino, but it's a lighter skinned Latino. There's, there's layers to this, right? And so I feel like the movie is representative of certain cultures and we shouldn't say that it's, you know, 
bad for, you know, trying, did it hit the heights that it could have? Probably not. And I think as Jake pointed out, you know, Lin-Manuel kind of made that point in his tweet, like we kind of got so far down the road, but we didn't get all the way down the road. And there's, there's a way to improve that. And I think the question of whether they should have realized that from the beginning, that's a useful conversation as well. But I mean, none of us are in Lin-Manuel Miranda's head. So the director. Yeah. Uh, And I don't, you know, I don't think Lin- and Mo Miranda's really going to be hurt by this, to be fair. You know, he's on The Tonight Show singing a Broadway medley with Jimmy Fallon. He has a Netflix musical coming out in the fall. You know, he's he's a superstar of stage and screen. Let's not um, feel sorry for him. No, I, I mean, I don't feel sorry for him. I just think, I think you can sort of hold those truths. You know, it can be, hey, like, this was a good movie, and wow, this made some strides in representation. Did it do all it could have? No. I mean, like, I don't know that we need to get to, like, a boycott or, like, you know, sort of lash out at Lin-Manuel and team. Um, but I think pointing it out is the way to go, and I think to... Say, could we have done better? Sure. How can we do better in the future, as Jake points out? I, I just don't know that the purpose of, of books and film is necess- I, I, necessarily to provide representation for everybody. You know, I mean, I, I'm all for a variety of perspectives and experiences being portrayed in books and on TV and on screen. But I don't I just don't see what I don't you know, there's nothing problematic in my eyes about In the Heights, other than you know, maybe that it's 35 minutes too long. So, that's my opinion. Well, uh, we'll just see what the casting conversations are with that West Side Story reboot. That'll be the next one to look for. Well, I don't think Natalie Wood's going to be play, playing Maria again. Well, that, that would be, that would be, that would be a, a, a true feat of CGI if she did. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's going to th- – yeah, great. Now we're going to cancel Steven Spielberg. Why not? Anyway, Jake, uh, you know, I don't mean to – you know, I have my opinions about this, but you, it was a great piece, and, uh, and I, we certainly appreciate you you popping in and, you know, adding your voice and your, your perspective to the, the debate. Well, thank you. All right. So, Jake Harris, we'll see you again soon. Uh, his piece about the In the Heights uh, controversy appeared uh, at Book of Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com and uh, we cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV time for dessert dessert is always TV and this week TV discussions will happen with Rachel Llewellyn hello Rachel Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me. Yes, nice to have you. Uh, you've written for us again this week. You're on a streak. I am. I seem to be on something of a roll. Yes. Yes. You're having a you're having a a, a, a Rachel Assange. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's been uh, intense, but I've been enjoying it, man. You've been rolling some really fun projects my way, and and this week I got to write about Kevin can f himself. Yes. What a show that is. I've watched that now. Kevin can f himself is. Uh, it's a, it's a satire, really, of uh, of like the King of Queens and Kevin Can Wait and Everybody Loves Raymond and all this other like working class guy on, on the East Coast sitcoms that that plague our screens. Yes, the perennially sports jerseyed Kevin. Who you know, who, who like all he wants to do is party with his idiot friends 
and uh, he has a, ba a bad working class job. He has no ambition. He's bad with money. And we discover Allison has to take it. Now, the interesting thing about this show is that, and, you know, when so when it's when Kevin is on the screen, the show is like a typical laugh track CBS sitcom, right? Mm -hmm. And then when Allison, when, when he leaves, and it's uh, from Allison's point of view, it turns into this sort of like a dark hued, like gritty single camera drama almost. Yeah, absolutely. It's like things, you know, get real. That phrase kind of gets pretty literalized in the way they shoot it. The the sitcom scenes are shot, you know, in this really kind of bright, saturated sort of multicam. And then you kind of switch to this kind of grittier, darker kind of single cam drama type shooting where you kind of get to see her states of mind sort of literalized. And I think they do a good job, you know, switching back and forth. Um, you know, it's a lot of people were criticizing. They were saying that the, the sitcom parts, like they're like, well, they weren't funny, you know, and they weren't I supposed don't really, to be funny. They're exactly. Not to be. Like, it wasn't really written to be funny. No, in fact, and what's interesting is after you see enough of the Allison scenes with the signal cam, the sitcom scenes begin to take on this kind of menace. Yes, they get a little more painful to watch. The more you know about her personal story and how she feels about things, that contrast gets a little more grating every time it switches back. So it definitely builds and it kind of feeds into the, you know, what's really going on, which is kind of the drama half of things. It's very high concept. And yet I found, like I watched the first two episodes, I found it surprisingly effective. I did too. I thought they were they were well written to kind of dovetail with the way it was shot. I know that a lot of critics were sort of complaining about it, but I thought they did a great job with it. I thought it was really smooth, um, and it kind of serves to further the you know the whole theme of the show. And I thought they did a great job with it. I'm kind of surprised that I'm hearing a little bit of negative uh, reviews about it because I loved it. Yeah, well, and I, I haven't read a lot of other reviews about it. I mean, I can see that. I mean, you know, it's very over the top. And, you know, the, the I mean, Allison's world is extremely gritty. Like, it's all, like, it, it's always sunny in Philadelphia gritty. Like, there's, like, you know, there's, there's like, you know, she, she gets mistaken for a prostitute. She does cocaine. But this is just the first two episodes. You know, she's just yeah. constantly, like, she's constantly, like, you know, breaking people's noses or giving them bloody lips or whatever. You know, it's a... She gets yeah. to know that's that's where the that's where that's that those are actually the comedy scenes. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, I completely yeah. agree, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where it'll go from here. If these are the first yeah. two episodes, like you said, it, it, it's one of these things. It, it could go very, it could jump the shark very fast, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, episode three is already out on streaming, and you know I haven't watched it yet, but I'm, I will definitely watch the arc of this show and, and see where it goes. I, I hope that they continue to carry it well. I, I have a lot of confidence in Rashida Jones. I think she has a really good track record, and I, I have a lot of high hopes. I'll keep watching. Now, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned yet that you know the, uh, the uh, character of Alice. Well, I did mention it. She's played by Annie Murphy from Shit's Creek. Now, and she, I feel, is like. You know, and I thought this from the beginning of Schitt's Creek is a fantastic comic actress. You know, absolutely like, yes. <laughs> she 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 has like she has a lot of range. You know, she can do a lot with her with facial gestures and and uh, you know she's she's very likable and believable even even in this crazy role. 
She really is. I was, you know, and I was surprised because, you know, Schitt's Creek was her first, you know, big major role. Before that, her screen time was kind of minor. Um, but She's, she really, we watched her almost develop as an actress as her character Alexis developed. And it was yeah. really enjoyable just watching her incorporate more and more nuance throughout the season into her character to where she's still kind of that, you know, jet setter type, but she has like new depth and they do a great job yeah. kind of writing that out and she develops that really well. So I knew she would do well with kind of any type of role. And you're right. She's such a skilled comic actress. I, I do compare her to um, what Maria Bamford. Just really subtle. Oh, these little ticks oh, I, she does are. I mean, funny. no offense to Maria Bamford, but I think she's a. You know, Maria Bamford. I don't know if you watched the Maria Bamford sitcom on Netflix, but I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Subtle is not what I would. It is not the term I would put on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, that's true. She's a subtler Maria Bamford. How's that? I think she, she's just. I think she's just a very gifted actress, and I think um, you know. And I'm, I'm, I you know I yes. I find myself crushing on her, but it's not because she is an attractive woman, but she's also just like extremely good at what she does. And right, uh, we have a collective professional crush on on Annie Murphy. Yeah, no, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan, and I'm gonna take this moment. This is a little interstitial moment. We're gonna play her hit song from Shit's Creek, a little bit Alexis. I'm a Hollywood star. I'm a little bit tipsy when I drive my car. I'm expensive sushi. I'm a cute, huge yacht. I'm a little bit single, even when I'm not. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit. Why? Why not shove that? I mean, it, 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 like, it was legitimately like, like a throwaway bit in an audition scene for one season, and then they produced it. They produced the song, and they actually turned it in to uh, like it was like a hit. It's like as somebody puts yeah. it in the comments on here on YouTube. All rise for the Canadian national anthem. Hide your diamonds. Hide your exes. <laughs> So funny. Best writing ever. She channeled yeah. a little bit of, uh, you know, Paris Hilton, a little bit of Britney Spears, and it's a great send up of all that whole genre. There's a full version of this. There's a full music video on yeah. YouTube. Do yourself yeah. a favor, go look it up. I love it. I love it. All right, so Rachel, you're gonna stick around here. You're gonna do the rare two segment um, jump here Pivot. on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review. Uh, we because well. We wrote uh, a writer named William Schwartz who lives in South Korea and therefore uh, doesn't exist in our time zone frame at all, uh, wrote about Kim's Convenience, at, uh, a Canadian broadcasting company show that is that is under a lot of uh, controversy right now. And uh, and you're the only person I, I know who, besides me who's seen that show. So we, I thought I'd keep you around. Uh, Kim's Convenience. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I wrote about Kim's Convenience for another website when it first hit on Netflix, and I, I loved that show. I felt like it was, uh, you know, it, it's, it's this uh, very, especially the first couple of seasons, very gentle family sitcom set in a convenience store, uh, bodega, Korean bodega, basically run by uh, a, a 
guy, not a Korean war veteran, but a, a war veteran from Korea named Mr. Kim and he, his his uh, his wife, and they have these these two uh, these two kids who have various sets of issues. And one one of whom, the eldest son Young, is played by Simu Simu Liu, who is about to become a huge Marvel Cinematic Universe star. Uh, anyway, so the show was very, very basic. You know, it's very basic family problems. A lot of sort of multi-ethnic cast of characters stops by the convenience store, and you know they have. It, it doesn't try too hard to be anything big. I felt like in the later seasons when they brought in uh, Young's love interest, he works at this rental car agency, and he has a, a, a love affair with this uh, his white boss, which is fine, except that like I felt like they kind of started overemphasizing that plot line. Whatever. These are minor criticisms, but but it's interesting that Kim's Convenience has been canceled ahead of schedule by the CBC because uh, Simu Liu criticized the show for not representing um, Asian perspectives accurately. So that's what's going on there. I don't know if I don't know, I don't know if you've been following this at all. I have a little bit, and it's an interesting um, segue because Shit's Creek is also a Canadian show, and uh, one of the co-creators of Kim's Convenience is Kevin White, and he wrote for that show. He wrote for Shit's Creek as well. So there's your degree of separation. Um, so both Canadian shows, interestingly. Um, but yeah, Kim's Convenience was definitely had that, that wholesome Sesame Street vibe. You were mentioning that. So I, I really liked that show. It was really wholesome. I was kind of surprised to hear that it was going to be canceled because they had renewed it for two more years last year. They renewed it for two more seasons. And then all of a sudden, um, I think early spring of this year, they said, well, we're just, this will be the last season. We're not going to do it for another season. So it kind of blindsided the cast as well. And that's kind of what prompted that, you know, I don't know if it was Facebook or Twitter, um, Simu Liu, who uh, plays Jung, as you said, he kind of spoke out about it kind of from the cast perspective and was like, look, you know, we're kind of left sort of professionally adrift here. We, we got ghosted sort of by Ince Choi, who was the original playwright of the play that it's based on, who also created the series. Um, but Ince Choi just kind of, I guess, just pieced out and, you know, felt that the, the story had run its course and he wasn't sure what to do with it. But throughout the series' five seasons, there had been kind of a shift um, behind the scenes to a little bit more of a conflict between the cast and the writing team. The, the apparent criticism was that the writing team did not really reflect the community that they were writing about, i.e. they were talking about specifically a dearth of East Asian female writers in the background and that their real life experience was sort of being discounted and, you know, the cast was offering up scripts and ideas and we're sort of being shot down. And, you know, I think the mood sort of shifted and um, now we have Kevin White working on the spinoff show strays, which stars the only white cast member of right. Nicole power Nicole power played Shannon. So that's kind of, you know, adding a bit of fuel to the, to the it's, issue. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you should you should mention this because you know, unlike my complaining about in the hikes, like I feel like the the, the complaint the um the, this controversy I feel like has a little more um you know substance behind it, right? Because if you look at Kim's convenience, you can legitimately see a decline in quality 
in the storylines and the scripts, they became much more generic, much less culturally specific, and and, and they just kind of the show. I was wondering what the problem was. I couldn't quite put my put my finger on it. Unlike Shit's Creek, which had its ups and downs, but really ended on a super high note, just got better and better and more popular. This show, I feel like, really kind of uh, faded a little bit, and the sort of behind the scenes controversy makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense that uh, the cast kind of fell victim to. Uh, I, I have a Canadian friend who I was talking to about this, and he said that there was a sort of this. Um, writing factory at the Canadian Broadcasting Company. You know, it's not. There's like it's like an old studio system almost. It's, there's a reason why Kevin White worked on both these shows, and the show just kind of lost its um, lost its way. It was based on a play by Inz Choi, and it, lo- it lost its Koreanness really. Right. I think that's putting it aptly. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, who knows what happened? I guess the story just kind of played itself out. But, you know, not in the audience's eyes and apparently not in the cast's eyes either. I mean, um, Paul Soon Hyun Lee plays Appa and also played Appa in the, the play version. Um, he also was like, man, I, I'm really hurt by the way this was handled. I, you know, Inns Choi was you know, not communicative with us whatsoever. And it's just kind of a shame that such a great show that you said really started on a high note kind of ended with a whimper. And even the whimper itself was cut off because we don't even get a season six to resolve, you know, some of the issues that were set up in the end of season five. So it was like written for two more seasons, but still, you know, abbreviated for us, the, the viewer. I haven't even, I, haven't, I couldn't even, I was in the middle of watching season five when, um, when the controversy hit. So I don't even know, I don't even know, uh, what went down? I was also kind of put off by the fact that Young was, um, you know, he was like off doing something, but really he was off shooting uh, Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. <laughs> right, right. And as he said in his statement, he's kind of always felt like the odd cast member out because a lot of his scenes were shot very separate from yes. you know, the rest of the three. Because you know, throughout season one, he's estranged, so he kind of started with a whole separate, you know, storyline and probably didn't film too too much with the rest of the cast. So, you know that. That in and of itself. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a t- it's kind of two shows. There's, there's the there's the convenience store, and then there's the wacky goings on at the rental car agency. Definitely, yeah, and it's I, I get that. You know, you can appeal to a couple different audiences that way. Um, it, it's it was a good show. It was well rounded. I thought for a while, but you know, as you said. It kind of lost some of its you know authenticity. You know, and that's what happens when you don't have a supporting staff that reflects the storyline and the people who are on screen. That just seems like a natural, you know, well, I knew it was, I knew it was in trouble, Rachel, when Ted McGinley joined the cast. Yeah. <laughs> He's the canary in the coal mine, huh? Yeah. Right. As soon as I saw Ted McGinley show up at the rental career agency, I was like, Oh, that's it. It's over. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> All right. Well, RIP Kim's convenience. You gave us some pleasure and now you're, now you're a dead TV show like all the other TV shows. So, Thank you to Rachel Llewellyn for sticking around to talk to me about Kim's Convenience and for talking to me about Kevin Can Fuck Himself, starring Annie Murphy. This has been yet another edition of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. www.bookandfilmglobe.com Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my contributors, Rachel Llewellyn, Sharon Vane, Jake Harris, and Stephen Garrett. We're going to close this week with a smooth jam 
by a Korean band, the only Korean band that matters. It's BTS, the boy band that all the girls and boys and people in between love. People of all, anywhere on the on the gender spectrum, love BTS. This is butter. It's smooth. Enjoy. Have a good week. value books and films and good TV. But now, during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them, more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes, it's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. Audio Hopper.